Hello and welcome to the One Football Women's Podcast. We are halfway through the Euro 22 group stage and it's finally time to start talking. It's horrible trying to do a podcast at some point during the Euros and especially the group stage because... You know, it's out of date instantly, basically, as soon as you've recorded anything. So we haven't bothered until now. We've waited until halfway through the group stage. There'll be another one at the end of the group stage. We've had a packed Old Trafford and an 8 0 win for England. We've had a massive statement victory from France. COVID cases, two wins for Germany, some terrible, terrible news and times for Spain. And we're really just one week into everything. So, yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to go through it all. We're going to try and pick out think the most important bits and our favourites so far and anything else interesting that crops up and I am thrilled to be joined by Annika Becker. Hello Annika. Hi Lewis. And Jesse Park Humphreys. Hello. Firstly both of you uh, if anyone doesn't know so Annika in German and Jesse in English are basically writing a diary for the tournament and every single day you can read whatever they're writing so Annika firstly uh, can you tell people where to find yours um yes um it's uh, the easiest it's to find um on my twitter account um i am at annika uh, underscore be um and i have a home page that's yeah, called uh, becca-annika.de, um, where you can find it. And I try to write every day. Sometimes I have to take a small break and I look at tactical stuff, but also just what happens in the media here in Germany around it. And sometimes I get a bit angry about things, but there's also jokes. <laughs> so a <laughs> little bit of everything. And Jesse, for you? Yeah, you can find mine on Flying Geese, which is a Emma Hayes reference. It's not just like a random bird thing. Although I have enjoyed the uh, the Euros. Lots of the Europeans seem very excited by the geese, which was an unintended uh, <laughs> naming thing that's happened. But yeah, flyinggeese.substack.com. And yeah, I'm doing something every morning about something that's caught my eye the night before. Right. And I really genuinely can't recommend either of these highly enough. And both of them, reading both of them, you know, like last night, as you say, it's whatever catches your eye, whatever's going on. Annika, obviously, especially more of a German focus and the German media and things like that as well. But like this morning, I read both and Jesse talked about Spain and Annika spoke about Germany. So even though we've all watched the same game, there's loads to say and you're not even just repeating each other or saying the same things. So please, everybody go and head over there and, and give that all of the love and attention that it deserves. So Spain-Germany was last night. That was a surprise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Was it? Well, go on then, Jesse. Do do you want to expand on that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think ahead of the tournament, I would have thought it was going to be a close game. But watching the way both of them played their first group games, I didn't feel particularly surprised at how comfortable Germany found the game, really. I thought... Spain were pretty pathetic against Finland, even though they did win 4-1, given, you know, the difference in quality between those teams. And I think you saw in the the Finland game that they've got, they're not necessarily defensively the most secure, even though they've kind of got this Barcelona defence in place. And then on the flip side, I thought when Germany played Denmark, they were very impressive, 
very defensively secure and Spain aren't very good at scoring goals either. So <laughs> I kind of it kind of played out, I felt like, last night almost how I expected it to. Uh, Annika, did you expect the game to go the way that it went? Um, not to that extent. I mean, I um, it's true that after after the first matches, um, definitely my expectations were shifted um, <clears throat> from how uh, Germany got into the tournament, and then obviously Spain um, having the problems that they do have. But I wasn't expecting it to be so secure and and sure by Germany um, because when. <clears throat> When we played Spain um, at the Arnold Clark Cup, you could already see okay what what they were trying to do, but there were always um, slip ups, um, and it wasn't just it it just wasn't very compact and very tight. And I thought, well, okay, they are definitely better now; they have improved. But I wouldn't have thought that they could do it the whole ninety minutes the way they did. So yeah, that that was a bit unexpected for me um, in the way that it went. How impressed have you been with the fact that Germany have played two games now and played differently in both of them? Obviously, against Denmark, they were always going to have more possession than they were going to have against Spain, certainly. But they outnumbered them in midfield. They really dominated from the off. They pressed high. There was a bit more, I guess conservatism to the performance against Spain last night you had you had that early really high press that aggressive put Spain under pressure and and not just for the goal but for like the first 10 minutes I felt and then it was only then that Spain really sort of came into the game but then they really didn't create anything Germany as you say they were completely solid they never looked in trouble yeah, I, I also wrote it on my blog. It just it's this kind of possession where all of the numbers, all of the metrics go up, but it doesn't really feel you can't really feel the danger um, coming from this apart from two scenes really. I mean, I think it was the tenth minute um where Lucia Garcia obviously uh goes to goes for goal, but um Merle Froms um, comes comes out and yeah, just uh, deflects it. And then in the second half, there was a really, really good shot by Caldente that would have gone in, but uh, Froms got the save in. But um, yeah, I think the difference in the games is uh, in between the two matches is what really um, has caught my eye because before i mean if you if you looked at germany uh, the, over the last year it was like okay the results are there but if you looked at the matches it was just not really good performance wise and tactically so to have um two matches like this that are different and played in such a good manner is just a huge step up and jesse would you say then like firstly how impressive did you find that but secondly where do you put the balance between being impressed by Germany or being disappointed by Spain? Yeah, I think Germany definitely have impressed. I always felt that they would top this group, but I thought it would be kind of closer than it than it has become. And I definitely agree with Annika that they feel a lot more um, tactically well sorted than maybe they've looked in, in some of their previous games. And I think it's interesting, actually, that um, France and Germany are, are two teams who didn't really do lots of warming up ahead of the Euros. I mean, obviously, Germany played Switzerland and France played Cameroon and, and Vietnam. So both kind of games where 
they weren't playing this high level opposition and then both kind of came out the gates really, really quick at the tournament. Uh, and I kind of wonder if it allowed them to take people by surprise because we hadn't really had a chance to watch them kind of like properly in the past month. Uh, in terms of this game, I thought it was Spain being particularly bad. I just think what Jorge Vilda is trying to do with that team is just such a mystery to me. There are so many talented parts on, on that pitch and um, he just doesn't seem to know how to, to put them together. And he doesn't even seem to know how to, you know, I don't know, use the most basic principles in the world. Like I tweeted last night, like say what you like about Phil Neville, but at least he knew that you could just play Ellen White and that would kind of get you through games. And I kind of feel like that about, you know, Spain, like they've got, number nines on the bench they Esther Gonzalez Amayo Sariegi and he won't even just like play them and lob some some balls mm. into them uh which I I just find really really bizarre obviously you know missing Alexia is a massive blow and I think they were kind of relying on her to bail them out of games like this you know I felt like last night was a classic where if Alexia can just like get one moment to score suddenly it's 2-1 and and you know maybe then Germany start to feel a bit nervous and things change but as it is they, it just doesn't really feel like they've got any kind of plan going forward as, as to how to create good chances. So we have Germany who seem to have multiple plans for whatever the situation demands. And, and Martina Vosteklenberg was interesting on, on television last night after the game as well and said, you know, that the players tactically just are, have completely got everything in their grasp, everything that's being asked of them, but also that they find solutions themselves and, and help the coaching staff find the solutions when situations arise that maybe they haven't planned for or that are tricky to navigate and this contrast between these two teams who obviously both came into the tournament as as big favorites everyone Annika is well especially after the first game everyone talked about Alex Pop and her story and missing the first, the previous two euros through injury she would have missed this one if it was last summer as it was meant to be through injury as well she's come back from a nasty covid uh, infection after that too and here she is having the tournament of her life seemingly early on but Marina Hegering has also been incredible I think in both of these two games and she's barely played all season yeah she had an injury um was out for a very long time and then she only got a few games in the uh, second division for Bayern Munich um I think and yeah she's she's just uh, really good I mean she just came back to to top form instantly and it's not just her being very good in defense and you know popping all of the headers in and balls out and stuff like that but she's also very good um playing the ball um mm -hmm. out the back um you could see that especially against denmark because oftentimes it was her trying the long ball for svenja hoot um to get uh, behind the um uh, the defenders on the wing and yeah that's just the quality that she has and i'm very i'm very happy for her because i mean obviously uh my team usually is essen and she played for us for a while before she joined bayern munich so i'm always looking out uh, for the girls <laughs> well and that's just i guess how the how the cards fall sometimes in tournament football and she's had yeah. this horrible injury and is back just in time spain jesse as you mentioned obviously without alexia pateas after her injury right on the eve of the tournament what do you think do you think it's as simple as there are there's enough talent there player number nine or 
do you think that's just sort of like that will get them a little bit closer to where they need to be? Because it does feel a bit like uh, Aitana Bonmati at the moment, I think, has played really well. But other than that, the team isn't really built for anybody to succeed. No, I don't. I don't. The the number nine thing I'm saying a bit facetiously because I just think it's an example of like how it feels like Vilda has zero idea at all. Like that would be the most simple thing that I think would move Spain on a tiny, tiny bit. Um, but I just think maybe in the past Spain have been able to rely on this kind of Barcelona core, and now suddenly you've lost Jenny Hermoso and Alexia Puteas and. He's trying to put lots of different attacking pieces together and they clearly don't have any real idea how to work with each other. And I thought as soon as Alexia was out, it was going to be kind of fascinating as to how he tried to replace her. And he's he's kind of had two different tactics so far, neither of which have looked particularly successful. The first was was using uh, Irena Guerrero in that position against Finland. And then last night, Patry was pushed higher up the pitch and then Laia Alexandri came in at that kind of base of midfield role, which again is just one of those funny things because you're just like, Patry's like one of the best in the world at, at being at the base of the midfield. So do you really need to push her up higher up the pitch when you've got kind of players like Claudia Pina or Mariona could move into that more central role because that's kind of how she likes to drift anyway off the wing. Then you could put Athena on the wing because, you know, we watched her at the Arnold Clark Cup and everyone thought she was amazing. But it just feels like he always, I always say like, you should try and think of like the dumbest way to like put this Spain team together. And that's normally what Jorge Vilders like puts on his team sheet. Yeah. I I also did want to ask you about Patry because I thought that was really strange and interesting move to weaken another part of your team by moving a player from, from her best position. And well, we saw Germany, uh, we saw Germany really put Spain under pressure and, and cause them some issues building out from the back. So based on all of that, do we even think that there's a good chance Denmark will give Spain a real run for their money in the last the last group game? Which, by the way, I think Spain should be playing without their captain too after Irina Paradis dragged Alexandra Pop down. I have no idea how a red card wasn't given. And I, you would really, really worry for them if they were then going into the Denmark game without her in defence. They somehow got away with it. But yeah, do you think there's, I mean, we saw what Germany did to Denmark and obviously you're tempted to say that Spain could do something very, very similar, but do you worry for them? The players on the pitch at the end of the game last night looked like they'd just been knocked out of a tournament. They looked absolutely gutted. I don't understand how that wasn't a red card either. I was sat behind that goal. So like I could see the like pull and obviously like Stephanie Frappa was like on the other side. So you couldn't really see, I guess she couldn't really see how Paredes was holding on to Alex Pop. Um, but I don't know what VAR was for unless to have the view that I had. But yeah, I think Denmark could could knock Spain out. Obviously, I think, you know, Spain kind of have the advantage here in that they would only need to draw, probably. And Denmark, I don't think, have been very good. So I think they're, the two teams are in very similar positions. But, you know, again, the Panila Harder factor remains the Panila Harder factor. Like, that's a player who... You know, she's got her first goal now and she has the ability to kind of totally drag that Denmark team through uh, when when they need her to. So I think that will be a worry for Spain, especially if they are kind of looking at, you know, shuffling this midfield constantly. And you've kind of got this uncertainty about the relationship between your centre-backs and, and your defensive midfielder where in exactly in the area where Penilla Hard is going to operate. Annika, what do you reckon? Do you think 
Denmark could spring a surprise and, and maybe that'll be who England are facing in the quarterfinals? Mm, no, I don't really think so. Um, I think um, that Denmark are a bit too slow when they have um, have the ball um, because they do have a good structure usually um, when they try to go up front, but it just all takes so much time. And then you have Spain. I mean, yeah, of course, they have this mixed up midfield and everything. Um, but I still think that they are good enough um, to really um, hinder Denmark there. And I also think that they should be able to score against Denmark because they just, um, I mean, I, I also watched the uh, game against Finland and I thought that they didn't really learn from from the problems they had against Germany. I mean, obviously, it's not many, not much time in between, and there's only so much you can do. But I I felt that if Finland had played the spaces on the wing a little bit better, they just could have wrecked them again because um, those defenders they were high high on the pitch, and there were a few scenes where you really could see that they were trying to do that, but then. They did lack a little bit of the technical ability, um, but there was so much space. And I think, um, yeah, if Spain uh, do that um, with Athena, maybe, um, hopefully for them, then they really should uh, should go through. Well, whoever does go through out of those two will be playing England, which I'm sure everybody would be really, really eager to do after their 8-0 win against Norway. Annika, firstly, I'm going to come to you. The, the Probably the the neutral, I guess, um, between the two of you. Um, what the hell happened? Like, What what were you thinking as all of that was going on? <laughs> I was uh, really amazed. <laughs> I mean, I just loved watching that game. I felt a little bit um, sad for Norway, but then on the other hand, I just um, felt like they were so many poor choices that, I mean, come on, that coach, he just brought it a bit uh, on himself and on his poor players. Um, but yeah, it was just amazing to watch. Uh, it was real real fun and I mean obviously uh, we all knew before that England would be very very good um, offensively and you could see that um, in every in every second of the match really I mean it it did get a bit more slowly in the second half but <laughs> you really wouldn't have wanted them to go even further. Jesse the big question that penalty come on that wasn't a penalty. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I think VAR generally at this tournament has been a bit bit wild. And I think Ellen mm. White obviously has a tendency to do these things. And but I kind of feel like once there's VAR, I like I don't really care if a player's going to dive because it should be caught out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know Michael Cox was on the, at the Athletic Tactics podcast saying that there's stuff in the rules about kind of attempting to pull someone and maybe Maria Torastotia was doing that. But I think fortunately for England, it's hard to say that that really changed the game. I think we'd have had a very, very similar outcome regardless of whether the penalty had been given or not. So. No, I, don't, I don't know. I think Norway started pretty well. I genuinely thought Norway started pretty well in the first well, five minutes. Um, yeah, like, yeah. when a game ends 8-0, you can't turn around and say that something would have maybe been different with a refereeing decision. Um, I, I, interestingly on this, I was uh, uh, a talk a couple of years ago with uh, a German ref, Manuel Krefer, who's since retired 
retired. And he said, well, they have this clear and obvious thing in, in the laws, but no one knows what that means or what the threshold is for that. And he said that the German FA had told the referees that their threshold for clear and obvious, because they wanted to have like a black and white one, was that if a penalty has been given on the field and then you check it and there is any contact at all between the two players, then the penalty has to stand. And that was their way of trying to get around that clear and obvious thing. So I don't know, maybe UEFA have put something similar into practice and that's how we got the uh, that decision. Jesse, I wanted to ask you about Leah Williamson and well, about England more broadly, but about Leah Williamson playing at the back. Obviously, since Serena Wiegmann came in, we've seen her playing midfield almost always. It's something we've talked about before. Um, in the friendly against Belgium in the warm-up game, we saw a more aggressive attack-minded Leah Williamson, I guess, drifting out wide, getting forward, making those runs that Georgia Stanway's made so brilliantly in the tournament. But we also saw England in the warm-up games be struggle with being pressed high and playing out from the back a little bit under that pressure. So do you think this has solved it? Do you think this is a good way to get an extra attacking player into the pit, onto the pitch and a way to get Williamson's ability on the ball at the back line? Or do you think England just haven't really been tested yet? I think right now it is good. The worry I slightly have is is the Georgia Stanway problem, which is that, you know, she obviously has this tendency to go a bit mad at points uh, and concede silly fouls. And we saw that in the warm-up games, but she's been really good in, in the opening two games. And I kind of think, well, for me, the thing that felt hard with Leah Williamson in midfield is that it felt like she was trying to do so much. She actually left Kira Walsh, like, quite isolated a lot of the time and it felt like that was limiting Walsh's ability and I think Walsh is such an important piece of this England team he doesn't really get talked about that much but it feels like by having Williamson behind her and then Georgia Stanway next to her it really gets the best out of her and it gives England kind of two passing options like exceptional passing options in very different areas of the pitch whereas it felt like when they were playing kind of next to each other it was it was a lot easier for teams to kind of focus on what area they needed to close down. I don't know if we'll, we'll see it change around, but I think it definitely feels like the right decision. And I think it's telling that Wiegmann's now played it, uh, that that formation kind of three times in a row. Uh, the last warm-up game against Switzerland and, and now these two opening group games. That it feels like it's something that she's like, I tried this for nine months and it, it never quite clicked. <laughs> Uh, so now we're going to kind of revert. I mean, the person I kind of feel sorry for is is Alex Greenwood and then maybe knock-on effect on Demi Stokes because I think Alex Greenwood had a fantastic season and is more than good enough to play in, in central defence for this team. But it seems like she's at least now considered the second-choice left-back behind Rachel Daly, mm-hmm. which now means Demi Stokes has become the third-choice left-back. So there's been a tough knock-on effect, but I think it's something very refreshing about Beekman's management of this team is that it isn't about the egos or the individuals or her personal relationships with players. Although obviously it's it's hard not to say there is a bit like, look, all this reshuffling is clearly because she wants Leah Williamson to start because she's her captain. And obviously she really likes her, but you know, it's been about being like, what is the system that works best? And and unfortunately, like some, some players will miss out and that's the reality of, of playing a football team. Right. And that's, I mean, it's also played havoc, by the way, with the squad numbering. I come out in hives watching a number eight <laughs> play centre-back. It's doing my head in. But yeah, it does feel like, uh, you know, as you say, the egos are put to one side. The, I wouldn't say the names, because all of these players that you've just mentioned are big names, so someone has to miss out. But club form or 
the roles that people play for their clubs. I think Serena Wigman's got a really good understanding that, well, the England team plays differently and different things are required. So it doesn't necessarily matter that somebody maybe had a superb season if it's not the best thing for this England team. And also like a level of reflection as well, that as you say, she tried something for nine months and has now come to the conclusion one game before the tournament starts <laughs> that she actually prefers another idea. So then she changes it all suddenly. I'm also really glad that you mentioned Kira Walsh because obviously you went 8-0 and nobody wants to talk about the holding midfielder. But I thought she was, in both of these games so far for England, absolutely brilliant. I think the question still is, Jesse and, and Annika for you as well, Now, I mean, Germany now can't face England until the final, but Germany have done such a great job of pressing high and putting teams under pressure and winning the ball high up the pitch. We still haven't really seen anyone ambitiously and aggressively go at England like that. And you do have to wonder if if that's sort of the next test or the the hurdle that they will have to manage if they're going to go really far in this tournament. I know it's kind of frustrating because I thought I always thought we would beat Norway. Obviously, not like we did, but I was kind of hoping that Norway would offer that kind of test uh, in terms of you know there's a, a ridiculous number of good attackers in that team, and I thought it would be quite useful for England to be put under some pressure. Obviously, that didn't happen at all. I guess the only, you know, positive thing is is the way England's schedule has gone. The fact that they, you know, played those three Arnold Clark, Clark Cup games against Germany, although admittedly a weakened one, Spain and Canada, and then to go to kind of uh, to play the Netherlands as well before the thing is. I, I do feel like within this calendar year, England have played a large number of very good teams. They've played more top 10 sides than any other team at this tournament recently. So I do at the very least feel like, they've had the practice of doing it and I feel like their challenge will be will be the same as almost any other teams in this tournament and you know I guess the flip side of of that is that Norway looked like a team who should do that to England and England it wasn't necessarily that they didn't do it as as you kind of said Lewis I thought they looked fine for the first five minutes it was that England stopped them doing it so you know, to a certain extent, you could argue, well, maybe actually England have shown that how effectively they can neutralise that. Well, yeah, I, I imagine they'll have a, they'll have tougher tests. But, I agree, uh... but that, there's an <laughs> angle that you can go down there, right? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely get um, get what you're coming from. Annika, are you are you happy to be avoiding this? For, that Germany will be avoiding this England team in the quarterfinals because. I mean, everybody wants to win the tournament, right? And I kind of feel like playing them in the quarterfinals might have been nicer than having to play them potentially in front of a packed Wembley. Yeah, I mean, um, it always uh, depends on how you look at it. I personally feel like this would be a really, really nice final that I would love to see. Um, But yeah, of course, you would have the whole stadium uh, packed against you um, coming from Germany. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I think from... From a tactical point of view, it's not that much of a difference, really, because there's just not so much time in between. And I I would really be excited to see this because I'm, I kind of have a bit of a question mark of how England would handle um, someone getting at them with more physicality, because I think that's a bit... A bit of what they didn't have against them yet, uh, not in this shape and shape or form. So, because I mean, England obviously they are also playing very uh, physically. They have 
technically very, very gifted players and they are technically smart, but they are also bringing that punch. And I haven't seen anyone bringing that against them yet. So that would be exciting for me to see how they fare with that. But yeah, I think if Germany and England face uh, each other, um, it would be a really, a really open game and tough to call. Yeah, well, I mean, just that's a whole other podcast, but I, yeah, I didn't understand. I didn't understand Norway not picking Frieder Marnum from the start of this one and then taking ages to get her on the pitch. That's a whole other discussion yeah. that, that could be had. <laughs> uh, and Jesse, so England won't be playing Germany. It'll be Spain or it'll be Denmark. After last night, especially, I guess you're not looking at the Spain game as something that England should be afraid of, really. No, although I think within a knockout tournament and the quality of Spain's players, yeah. you still, you know, kind of can't write them off. But I, I agree. I think Wiegmann has shown how good she is at kind of figuring out what opposition teams are going to try and do to England and and how you really effectively neutralise them. And I think when you look at a team like both Spain and, well, I think Spain don't have much of a plan and Denmark have quite conservative plans. It feels like they're both kind of good good opportunities to to go through. Uh, I also think, you know, something I've kind of talked about a lot ahead of this tournament is, Wiegmann aside, England have a pretty good, you know, record at knockout fixtures at major tournaments until they get to semi-finals. So I think there's that as well, which it will make these sides feel confident. Like, okay, Denmark obviously had a great run at 2017, you know, knocking out Germany. So they, they might feel good at, at being in a knockout stage, but Spain have absolutely horrendous record at knockout fixtures so again that feel that feels like if it is Spain that goes through that then becomes a massive ask for them to basically have win their first ever knockout fixture against a team who it's hard to argue with being either the first or second favorite for the for the competition as a whole at the moment yeah and um, they'll have a, a packed house behind them as well England no matter who they end up playing at every back stage at the Amex as well where they've just scored eight goals yeah it's it's not it's not the setting <laughs> that you'd want to walk into as as the opponent uh, those two groups obviously we've got the group winners I'm really excited that the fact that we've got basically two playoff two knockout matches already essentially Spain against Denmark and, and Austria against Norway to see who joins them in the quarterfinals and who they face in the quarterfinals obviously though we We've got other groups to touch on um, and other goings on to touch on. We are halfway through the group stage. So we've seen all of those teams twice. We've only seen the rest once. Still, it's, you know, once is enough to to make some judgments and, and still have a conversation about it. Netherlands are without Viviana Miedema now after she tested positive for, for COVID. She's apparently also the coach as well as their star player. It seemed, or it's emerged over the past few days, that it was it was her idea that um, that Danielle van der Donk and Jill Roach should switch positions against Sweden, and the Netherlands played a hell of a lot better after it, and, and Jill Roach scored as well in the one all draw. It'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do with her, her the next couple of games, right? Yeah, um, of course, definitely, okay. definitely. Um... I think she's hard to replace. <clears throat> um, I think that maybe Jill Roth could be the one to step up um, a little bit more if if they let her play centrally from the start, because that's just where she thrived um, playing in Wolfsburg. Um, mm-hmm. She's always got that position 
behind uh, behind the striker and she just is very good at picking the right moment to step up into the box and get a shot off and she's very very dangerous uh, from this position um, has scored a lot from that so that could be a way to go um, but of course you would miss this roaming tactical quality that Miedema has on the pitch so yeah that that will be a tough one um, for them. Um, and I do kind of wonder if it might not be good for them to bring on Lynette Bärenstein maybe on the right wing uh, because she's got, yeah, she's got some other qualities that other players um, on this side maybe don't have. I find that she's very good at pressing high and recovering the ball high and just getting her team some turnovers. She's also very speedy. So that could be a bit of a different approach um, they might take. And it's always, it just seems like such a consistent problem this tournament. And we saw it with Norway as well. Players not playing in their best positions in order to yeah. shoehorn extra players into the team. And yeah, I I completely agree. I, I mean, Jill Rod is, we talk about false nines a lot, but as a sort of false 10 bursting into the box and, and getting on the end of things, I think Jill Rod's fantastic. What did you make of, of Sweden, Jesse, in the game that they just played against each other? Yeah, they were they were sweeding it out um, in that they kind of looked like they should be very technically good and should be able to put the Dutch team under a lot of pressure and then it just didn't really turn into anything and, and kind of fizzled out. And I feel like this is Sweden's constant problem kind of over the past year or so. You know, you look at them at the Olympics and they have this incredible group stage they're smashing America they literally look like world beaters and then they kind of get to the knockouts and everything starts to fade and it's almost like they've got a bit of a collective lack of belief or just that like the attacking parts just still don't quite really click together obviously um they played Aslani, Lina Hurtig and Frilino Rolfo as their front three and I thought all all of them I didn't think any of them were bad uh, and they brought Black Senius on later in the game as well. And I thought she had some good moments. But there's just something about it which doesn't feel like it ever coheres to be truly threatening. And I think that allows teams to kind of grow in confidence as games go on. And again, you look at that Olympic gold medal match and that's basically what happened to, to Canada is that like as things went on, they were like, well, hang on a minute, like, we're, we're kind of still in this game because you've not been able to to make your pressure count and then they only needed like one penalty to take it all to penalties and then eventually win so for me it still feels like it feels like Sweden a very a very controlled team and I think that could serve them very well because I do genuinely believe the kind of like cliche that defences win tournaments and I think defensively they they remain very good uh but it's just something not quite right ever, I think, when they're going forward. Do you, do you think, obviously, it's one game, right? And it's the start of a tournament and things can change so quickly in tournaments. But we've seen, with easier starts, the likes of England and Germany, I mean, starts as in the first game, certainly not the second games. Uh, but we've seen England and Germany look really, really impressive. We've seen France, who we'll talk about, look really impressive. We talked about this tournament being one that six, seven, eight teams could win, maybe going into it. Did you watch that game, Annika, and think 
compared to some of those other sides, there's something missing for the Netherlands and for Sweden? Um, yes, definitely. Um, I I kind of um, got a bit into the uh, uh, the Sweden propaganda before because um, a colleague of mine um, who's working in Sweden and has watched a lot of matches and has seen their um, pre-tournament um, stuff was very buzzing about them. So I... I kind of got a little bit of that buzz, but then when I watched the match, I was a bit disappointed. I mean, um, it's all been said already. I felt like there was um, a certain punch lacking. I mean, it's difficult because Lina Hurtig, she's not the type of striker that's really, really looking that dangerous ever because I think she's more of a team player. Um, if you know what I mean, mm. um, while Stina Blackstenius is more the type of person um, to go in and really get those shots off. So yeah, I'm um, I'm excited to see how this develops. I mean, they have um, Sweden have um, Switzerland up next, who are looking well, very very deflated really. Um, um, also from a health point of view, they've got lots of players out. Um, in the last couple of days so they yeah they won't be at their full strength and they already didn't look good um i thought in the match that they have had before so this could be a bit of a match for sweden to go all in and just kind of free yourself and just uh, get lots of goals and get your offense going yeah, that will be the, so. That's that's today's Wednesday's games. Is we have um, yeah. Netherlands taking on Portugal, who look like they could spring a surprise or two. And as you say, a depleted Switzerland after I think was it eight play training was cancelled on Monday. I think eight players and eleven members of staff yes had yes, had yes, some yes. sort of bug, um, which obviously is the absolute nightmare scenario at, at a tournament where every single day counts for so much. Um, and then Group D, where, where things are a little bit more clean cut after just one game. Uh, I think pretty much everybody, after Italy especially, had drawn with Spain in their last warm-up match, thought that France might have a test on their hands. So we, we talk about all this French unrest and Amandino isn't there and all of this stuff. And then Jesse, they just, uh, well, blew everybody, especially Italy, away. Yeah, and me away, because I said they'd go out in the group. But um, you have to have a hot take amnesty, I guess, at points before. If you don't put your hot takes out there, you can't be proven right. So sometimes you have to take the L's. But yeah, France were fantastic. I really didn't expect it. Again, as I kind of touched on earlier, I think it was interesting because they had these very easy warm-up games. So it was like, great, you smashed Vietnam and Cameroon. Like, that doesn't really tell me anything about you. Uh, But it turns out that it did show they were good at scoring goals, and they kind of proved it here. Um, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for France because I watched the first 45 minutes of that game thinking, I'm never going to see another 45 minutes like that in my life. And then the next day I went to the Amex <laughs> and saw a better one. <laughs> but yeah, they they looked unreal. I think what was really interesting and what kind of struck me was how going into this, we talked a lot about, I guess, the PSG front three of Baltimore, Katoto and Diani and I kind of thought she wasn't going to use them like that because she hadn't, uh, Diacra that is, hadn't in any of the warm-up games and she played Cascarino on the left instead and, and it really paid off but you still got that PSG connection but it was just with Grasque Oro and uh, Katoto because I thought the way the two of them 
linked up with Katoto dropping back and Georo being able to run through and, and take that space was was really impressive uh and yeah they just absolutely battered Italy and it is really interesting it feels like you know historically these international tournaments the, the games are close but it feels like we're really seeing teams just absolutely wilt under the pressure I don't know if that's maybe a natural outgrowth of sides feeling like they're getting better so wanting to be more open you know Italy are a team who some people have like picked out as dark horses and so they don't want to necessarily just play this deep block they want to try and give a team like France a go but they're not yet at the level where they they can do that like it's almost like the Chelsea Barcelona thing right like Chelsea in the Champions League final Chelsea felt like they could and should play against Barcelona and it turned out they they couldn't and shouldn't and I wonder <laughs> if that kind of thing is is going on here too in in some of these games because yeah you look at what Denmark, Norway and Italy now have kind of, who are three teams who you wouldn't necessarily think were going to be on the end of these four goal plus thrashings, but but have them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Italy, I think, I also think Italy were a little bit hard done by by, by the scoreline. Um, but as you say, France, first time that anybody's ever scored five in the first half of a Euros game and the very next day somebody goes and scores six in the first half of a Euros game. Um, Grace Giro was somebody that nobody was talking about before this tournament. She had eight goals in her 49 France appearances <laughs> before and um, then pops up with a hat-trick on her 50th. So, yeah, it's just one of those situations, I guess, where there's so many teams in this tournament uh, that are stacked, but it's such a great example of just how stacked France are, Annika, and how many players they have who can hurt you. Yes, they look really, really good. Um, and, yeah, I was just amazed uh, by uh, Grace Gajoro. Uh, she was really, really good. And I was also very happy for her because she's um, not just an international level, but she's always um, this kind of player who gets missed out on um, a lot because there, of course, there's always a lot of talk about um, the other players around her um, who are scoring more goals, but she's just such an intelligent player, the way she moves on the pitch. Um, that's really, really good. So I was happy for her, but I was also sad for Italy. Um, I also felt that they did lots of easy mistakes that you don't usually see from them um, defending wise like getting pulled out very easily um, which then opens up uh, this huge uh, space uh, where yeah a Diani who is super fast uh, can just run into um, yeah so that was something that I didn't really see from them in that way before the tournament uh, when I watched um, a few of their matches but yeah we'll see how it goes on I mean um, they've got Iceland um, in the next match and I think that could be a really close one I can't really put my finger on it um, how that one uh, will turn out um, yeah, but France, for me, are definitely one of the big title contenders. I mean, they already were before, um, even with all of the talk about Diacre and Henri going on, but they just have quality. I mean, they also have lots of quality in defense, of course, um, with Wendy Renard. Um, so, yeah, that will be very exciting to see. 
And coming to to Iceland and Belgium quickly, Jesse, because this this result and I guess the Italy, the way that they lost, and to just be blown away like that, you never know what that's going to do to a team. And it, this always felt like the group where second, like there was a clear first place, but second might be the hardest to call if you didn't predict France to get knocked out <laughs> in the group stage. Um, <laughs> so I think you were at Belgium, Iceland, right? What what did you make of it and? Are you any closer to being able to call who might who might join France in the quarterfinals? I wasn't at Belgium, Iceland, but I did watch ah, it in sorry. a gay cafe in Rotherham before France, Italy. Um, but yeah, I I've kind of been quite hot on Iceland because um, I think they're like a pretty solid team, and and I like Svendis Johnstotter a lot, and I think she kind of adds that star quality to them and I think you saw that in the game against Belgium she like everything good kind of went through her and oh my god she runs so fast this is it's why I unreal. thought you were there because because I read you writing about how ridiculous quickly <laughs> quick she is and yeah and I thought that you were because I saw her live this season as well and um it was like you watch on tv and then you see it in person and you're like why is everybody else running so slowly <laughs> like they're not yeah. she's just ridiculously <laughs> quick yeah, but and the, and then the the fact that she she can throw so far as well, I I love it all. Um, but Iceland, I think will will feel frustrated that they only got a draw here. I think this was a really good opportunity for them to kind of be able to put pressure on Italy. Uh, especially obviously they didn't know what was going to happen later in the evening. But you know if they come away with three points and then faced Italy tomorrow, um, they could have had a really good shot. I think uh, as is, I still think that they can cause Italy problems I think we you know saw in that game that they're not necessarily ready to deal with lots of fast-paced players but ultimately Iceland really only just have the kind of one doing that but I think it is fascinating this group because also you know now Belgium have that point Belgium might think like (laughs) why can't we you know get a win against Italy in the last group game and, and kind of see what happens there so yeah it's really open and I feel like maybe those three teams are all fairly similar levels like uh and that's why it's kind of quite hard to put your finger on on who's going to come out on top i was really surprised actually um the analyst which is opta's editorial arm they've got you know like a a percentage predictor kind of thing and they've been really hot on belgium all the way through they had belgium i think as the like favorite like favorite of france get out of that group so now i'm like maybe we should keep more of an eye on belgium yeah it'll be interesting especially because in that group if you if France win all three of their games, then it really could just come down to goal difference and who didn't get smashed by France the most or or the, who maybe, you know, manages to get a 2-0 win in one of the other games or something like that. So it's it's exciting to be halfway through the group stage. Obviously, those two groups have, have just had the one game each, C and D. But there's so much still to play for and, and so open and head-to-head clashes that have so much riding on them going into sort of the, the second half of the group stage, if you like. Is there anything, either of you, from the tournament that we've not touched on that you think we just deserves a moment in the spotlight? Um, one thing that I've found really amusing, which maybe I shouldn't, <laughs> which isn't actually about the stuff on the pitch, but I'm really enjoying how over the top all the teams are going about losing different players like i the alexia thing i kind of got or at least initially but then the way that spain had to dedicate every bloody goal to her as she sat (laughs) at the stands and made me laugh and then i thought germany were going a bit wild as well with all the Lea Schuler stuff like she's only got covid she's gonna be back in about three or three or four days presumably (laughs) so i've just been really enjoying this like very intense levels of 
I don't know. I feel like the Netherlands are going to come out tonight when everyone will have like either a Miedemar or a Sari van Vienendal or a Jackie Gronen shirt because they managed to lose three <laughs> well, they, players. They, so maybe uh, they'll have, they, have all they, their names on them. They won't because they won't be able to choose from the three of them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm imagining a, a father-son Holy Spirit type, but their faces <laughs> in each of them, like a bespoke shirts. I reckon there's um, a shirt manufacturer in Sheffield working very hard right now. <laughs> It's very, it's a very, very cynical thing to put in the spotlight from you. The players, the players, they care too much about each other. Stop it. Yeah, yeah, can't have that. <laughs> uh, Annika, anything from you? Oh, I don't know. I'm just um, enjoying all of the vibes and the atmosphere. Um, I don't know how it is in England, but in Germany, after the opening match, there was um, a bit of grumpiness because uh, the commentator on German TV um, um, really cared a lot um, to say at least like five times that the atmosphere just isn't good. (laughs) I mean, it got me angry because I was like, yeah, but of course it's good. I mean, I can hear the atmosphere. It's there. And um, also it's a very different fan base than what you would be used from uh, a men's Euros or a men's World Cup. Um, but she didn't care to explain that. Um, so, yeah, I just felt like... Um, that it's really nice to see the crowds, um, to see the stadiums, and yeah, I'm just enjoying that. Yeah, I, I think we can agree with that, that the football so far has been good, and, and it's lovely to just yeah. see it taking place in, in front of so many people and getting so much attention. Let's hope all of the above uh, continues for the rest of the tournament because we've still got have a long way to go, even though it feels like so much has happened already. Uh, Jesse, um, again, where can people find you and your daily Euros, whatever you want to call it, diary, I guess? I think newsletter I'm going with. Yeah, yeah newsletter. That does make it sound yeah. a bit dry, I, I agree. But diary, I feel like, sounds like I'm writing, you know, my personal secrets, <laughs> there, which actually I'm just revealing on this podcast, like my annoyances about teammates liking each other too much uh you can find me on on twitter at jesse j-e-s-s-y j-p-h and annika the same question for you yeah um you can find me on twitter at at annika underscore b-e and yeah my my um uh, euros diary is the pin tweet both of you thank you so much for joining me i hope we can speak again before the end of the tournament but i know you're both going to be incredibly busy um fingers crossed and i guess fingers crossed for an england germany final as well fingers crossed yeah. that, that was my prediction pre-tournament <laughs>